Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be back with you again today, Ben. How are you? I'm doing well, John. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty well. Well, Ben, I think we made it. This is the grand finale of our multi-part Evidence That Demands a Verdict series. It's hard to believe we finally reached the end, but uh, it's bittersweet, I think. Uh, it's mostly sweet, I think, for me. I think I'm ready to move on. There's, We've had a lot of other things that we've been talking about off air that I think we are kind of interested to get into. And I don't know if uh, Josh McDowell actually deserves any more of our attention, but here we are, and we are going to do the finale today. Um, we've already gone through his entire presentation that's available on YouTube. And now we're dealing more with... Um, listeners of the show and social media posts talking about Josh McDowell and his arguments, we wanted to go through some of what other people have to say um, and kind of answer some of the questions that um, other people have brought up to us that maybe we addressed or maybe we weren't clear or maybe we didn't even get to at all. So this is some um, folks that were on Reddit um, that commented and I sort of formulated uh, their comments into questions. And we'll just try to rapid fire, get through as many of these as we can, um, and hopefully not get bogged down too much in the details. Yeah, I mean, um, on the previous episodes, uh, I think we have a tendency to just kind of go on a long tirade when things uh, uh, really weren't adding up for us, and we were kind of frustrated with Josh's arguments. So today, we're going to do our very best not to do that and to keep it as concise as possible. So the first question we have um, is, were dozens of people, including the Apostle Paul, martyred by the Romans within the lifetime of the resurrection or within the time of the resurrection? It's, I mean, it's a historical question. Certainly there were Christians that were martyred. But the question I have is, what does that, where does that get you? Is that, is that being offered as some kind of evidence of the resurrection? The fact that people were martyred in that time period we don't even know if at that time if everybody believed in the resurrection if they believed in a spiritual resurrection or a bodily resurrection and if that's even the core i really think it's kind of a modern argument that apologists are making that it was really the belief in the resurrection that led to the martyrs or that was like the core of the faith at that point you don't really get that impression um when you read even the book of Acts and a lot of the early Christian literature. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that um, we should be really cautious about reading Acts too historically. Um, it's written later on, and it's an idealized portrait, I think, of the early church and early church history. Um, and so I would just be hesitant of using the things that you see in Acts to gauge like the realities of the early church. And we did talk about on the episode why we should be skeptical of the idea of massive persecutions by the Romans of early believers. We don't have evidence of widespread persecution by the Romans. The evidence that we do have is questionable, let's say, or problematic in some ways. So again, I, I think that some scholarship has moved away from this notion of widespread 
Roman persecution of early believers, and I think the disciples themselves, like Peter and James, um, we have James, the brother of Jesus, being killed in Josephus. Uh, many people believe that's not um, the James that's described in the New Testament. It's a different James. Yeah, there's not a lot of details. And the tales that we have that people base a lot of these beliefs about the uh, disciples of Jesus being martyrs are based on legends that were written centuries later. So I think we've talked about that a lot, um, but I just wanted to lay out those uh, those points again as well. Yeah, and really quickly, I mean, I think the whole reason this is being brought up is because Josh McDowell is kind of saying that like the martyrdom is somehow evidence that what they believe must have been true. And again, like what I've said over and over in like every episode in this series is like, well, then you would have to like accept the truth claims of any martyr, um, which, you know, obviously there's martyrs in all kinds of religions and movements all, all throughout history. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a double problem on the one hand, even if it's true, it doesn't really prove the point that Josh McDowell uh, tries to use it to prove. And there's also reasons to question um, how historically accurate that assumption is. Um, okay, so the next question that someone brought up, it's related. Um, did many people choose not to renounce their faith because they were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ? Did many people choose not to renounce their faith? Because... No, yes. I mean, th- I, I think there's no evidence of that. We talked a little bit about this on the show, the idea that these people, you know, it, it's almost like one of these uh, these stories that people make up about, like, you know, that the terrorist came into the room and said, deny Christ or I'll shoot you in the head. Um, it's a, that's fiction. Like we have, there's no historical evidence of anything happening like that. If there were martyrs, there's absolutely no evidence that the, the martyrs had the opportunity to like deny the resurrection. And that's really what Josh McDowell is laying out, which I think we have a fundamental problem with. Even saying, yeah, that people were martyred does not create this like larger context of um, them being them being given the ability to recant or them giving a prof- profession of faith. And this is sort of again like it goes into this myth of Polycarp's martyrdom that is is after that event happens um, and is written um, and is added uh, has literary flourishes, let's say, added to it. Um, So you can see how these martyrdom myths are embellished and um, curated um, by the early church fathers. And and we just really don't have any evidence of people that saw the resurrected Christ that were martyred for that belief. All right. Uh, In the next section, somebody asked about um, if the resurrection of Jesus is not a historical event... Why were women the ones to find the empty tomb in the earliest gospel mark? Yeah, so this is the um, one of the arguments you hear more often than not is like, oh, the fact that it was women that found the tomb in you know in the gospels that must mean that um, it's true because women would be seen as unreliable witnesses. And uh, no one inventing the story would have invented women being the ones who find the, found the tomb, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think it's a problem. For one, the Hebrew Bible says that two women's testimony is actually equal to a man's testimony. So it's not like their testimony is totally valueless. Um, and there were more than two women that were there that were witnesses to the empty tomb. So uh, conceivably, the tale is constructed in a way to make their testimony... Well, Ben, remember, it, it depends which gospel you read. Yeah. Well, I'm just going by Mark. Okay. Um, so <laughs> in Mark's gospel... Um, it's, there's, there's enough women there that, that witnessed the empty tomb. Um, their testimony would be considered valid. Um, and I also think that internal to Mark's narrative, um, everyone abandons Jesus at the cross except for the women. And it also would make sense that the women would be the ones coming to the body to anoint it with um, incense. Yeah, and so that's... It, it all works perfectly well as literary devices, too. I mean, I don't think that you have to assume that it is... They were historical witnesses because they were women, um, because women could could be witnesses also. And I don't think that it could... It means that they were not some sort of literary devices that Mark 
the author of Mark is using. They don't really point to either conclusion conclusively, um, but I don't think it's a problem that women are the first uh, witnesses um, because the Jesus movement in Mark is inclusive of of women. I mean, that's one of its uh, characteristics. Yeah, I think the point you made about the literary device is important. Now, Ben and I are not saying this is what happened, but we're laying out, like, what are some plausible explanations for all of this? And I think a really good one is when you are reading the narrative in Mark, well, who normally would would be the first ones at the tomb um, to, to find out if, um, you know, to discover whether or not a uh, resurrection had occurred it would always be women um, because in that culture it was the women that would always go and anoint the tomb so it would have been very odd if they had the men uh, being the ones to find jesus so maybe it's the explanation is as simple as that Um, i think there's a lot of uh, potential explanations i'm not really blown away by the weight of that argument yeah i just think it's an interesting rabbit hole to go down but i don't think it gives you any clarity on like they have to be real because mark would never use women if if uh it wasn't true Uh, because it wouldn't it wouldn't bolster the claims in the same way a man's testimony were now the interesting thing is that it's not really the earliest resurrection appearance that we have in mark because that comes from paul and the women are not mentioned in paul yes i was um, gonna say that so it's it's uh, always a little bit just to to throw another um potential monkey wrench in everything um but yeah i don't have a i don't think that the women being witnesses are as much of a problem as people make them out to be um all right let's see So let's move on to uh, the next one, which is, does the description of the death and resurrection in 1 Corinthians align with the gospel accounts? No. If you were to try to line up 1 Corinthians 15 with any one of the gospels, uh, the chronology and details um, are very different. Like we just said, there's no women at all in uh, 1 Corinthians, and even the order of appearances uh, is totally different. I think it's also interesting that um, Paul, and this may be a little off subject, but I think it's interesting that Paul basically considers the vision or voice or experience that he has, which is clearly not a physical body, just a human being coming and meeting him, the way it seems to be described in the Gospels. Uh, it's a very, it's a spiritual encounter. But in First Corinthians 15, Paul seems to be thinking that like. Everybody encountered a, encountered a spiritual Jesus. If you just read it pretty straightforward, it seems to be saying, like, in the same way, he appeared to me. He appeared to Cephas and the Twelve and, and so on and so on. And then uh, later on, he appeared to me. Um, so I, it's a little off subject, but I think that is important to know when, when, like, we're trying to get in Paul's mind. And like we've said on the show, this is likely coming from a creed, something that the community may have memorized and orally and passed down. And then Paul is just including that creed in, here in his letter, in his epistle to the Corinthians. But I think it's important if we're trying to get in Paul's head and understand what he thought the resurrection was. Well, if he's picturing it as some kind of like vision, epiphany um, appearance, then that's, again, not at all what it seems to be described in the Gospels. Yeah, it's really pretty interesting. It's so central to McDowell's argument, these appearances, and and all apologists really like hinge so much on the appearances. They, they love to go to the First Corinthians passage, um, but if you line up all the appearances, there's so many problems with each of them that none of them align. Different people at the tomb, different post-resurrection um, appearances, if there's appearances at all, um, a, a, like a backtrack and adding another ending on Mark with appearance stories. Um, so you have Jesus doing his ascension at different times, and this is just in internal to Luke's two books. Um so it's it is fascinating the different the the many differences um and the in the accounts and that John just talked about. Yeah, and then to get back to Josh McDowell's ultimate point that we should be able to trust um that these events are true because they're coming from eyewitnesses. I think this is one of the biggest strikes against that is that you have these very obvious contradictions that anybody just lining up the stories, you know, on a piece of paper will see 
Um, so if it's coming from eyewitnesses, like how come uh, they all completely disagree with each other? And we think a, a more likely explanation is that each author is writing for a particular purpose and their purpose is served best in the chronology that they give. Um, and they are, seem to be completely free and open to change the story uh, however they like. It does not seem like someone sitting down and interviewing witnesses. It seems more like somebody trying to persuade you that something is true and constructing the story in the way that best suits their end, end goal. Yeah, and I mean, this is a huge problem because it's the most important event. It's the resurrection. Every, everything sort of hinges on this one event. For those details to not align, um, I think is, is really a big, a big issue. Um, all right, so the next uh, question has to do with the Gospels. Are the Gospels essentially historical documents? Yeah, I mean, obviously Josh spent a long time on this. Um, I, I mean, I guess it's a little semantic, but they're historical in that um, they are true artifacts of history. I mean, the, the uh, manuscripts have been, you know, excavated and dug up. And in that sense, like they are historic literature that was created at a time period in history. But I don't think that's what the question means. The question is asking like, should we consider it history in the way that we think of modern history? Are these stories telling something accurately about something that happened in the past? And I think the answer to that is murky because um, I do think that there is there are elements that are historically accurate. Um, I mean, we know that, um, that, like in the book of Acts, it talks about different various uprisings, and I think there are historical details that probably did happen. Um, but no, ultimately, these are religious documents. They are not even claiming to be a history in the sense of like a Josephus or a Tacitus. They are written, it, it basically admits, they are written um, to persuade, especially the Gospel of John, I think is like the clearest in that respect. Um, historians, they understand that these are religious documents um, holy books, if you will, uh, written to a community of believers. Yeah, I agree. You know, the Gospels are not um, neutral, and they're they're not objective history. Um, but a lot of sources that we have in the ancient world are not objective history. Um, and so the goal is to be able to extract um, the historical kernels out of them, like what what history they can tell you um, from the documents instead of just treating them as if they're, again, an inerrant text that's telling you the story from an eyewitness perspective, which they just clearly aren't. So I think if you look at them as documents that tell you about the historical context of the person that's writing them, um, if you look at them as things that may contain oral traditions that people passed on about Jesus, um, that may contain uh, traditions that were passed on about sayings that people said Jesus said, um, that's a way to look at it um, and try to find the historical pieces that are there. Um, but I think that, yeah, if you're trying to read um, the document like the same way you would read a history book now, um, it's just not it's just not that. It's a polemic um, for faith, like John said. And I think that um, just to add on to what you just said, there there actually is some evidence that um, the history. The, the history at points given in the Gospels or the Book of Acts are not historically accurate. One example that I gave on one of the previous episodes was the death of Herod. Um, in the Book of Acts, it's described as he came out wearing a flashy coat and was uh, devoured by worms in front of the crowd. But if you read what Josephus says about the same event, it talks about him basically contracting some sort of a parasite and dying um, like over the course of the next, like, I don't know, weeks or months, which, which seems a lot more plausible. So I think that's a good example of what the Gospels are doing. The Gospels have no problem um, exaggerating or even flat out inventing um, situations if it suits their goal. 
Yeah, that leads right into our next question. Um, was Luke a detailed historian? This is a claim that um, I've heard my whole life from from believers, um, and uh, I don't really think there's any evidence of that. Um, I don't really know. I mean, one thing I think is really ironic is that Luke claims at the beginning of his gospel that um, he's going to make an orderly account, uh, at, you know, basically saying, like, the Gospels that came before Luke were not orderly. Like, that's the implication that you can take from that, is that many people have tried to write a Gospel, but I'm going to give you, like, the official orderly account. And if he is this um, super careful historian, why is he quoting almost the entirety of the Gospel of Mark? He's not, you know, like, when he's getting this information it doesn't seem like he is interviewing independent eyewitnesses because he's just quoting Mark word for word through the entire book. That's not to say he didn't interview people. We have no idea. But all the reasons that uh, I said in my previous answer about things that we find in Luke and Acts, and we believe it probably was the same author, where we can see exaggerations and flaws in the history given. And then the fact, I think it's a it's like a uh, deal breaker for Luke the historian if uh, he's just quoting uh, another book word for word, because then we'd have to say, well, Mark really was the historian because Luke is getting all his information from Mark. Yeah, it's interesting. If we if we do the two-source hypothesis um, and assume that there's a Q document that is shared or there's shared saying somehow between um, Luke and Matthew then really Luke is only responsible for the Luke material and he's only copying Q and editing it and uh, copying Mark and embellishing it. So his innovation as a historian is pretty minimal in that case. And I think like for me, Acts is extremely problematic. Um, but I think scholarship seems to be moving towards an assumption that Acts is later I think people usually thought that Acts was after Luke and Luke was between like 85 and 90. Maybe Acts was like 90 to 95. I think people are starting to think that Acts may be even later than that. Um, and John and I are both, I think, are um, partial to the idea that the author of um, Luke Acts may have had Josephus, which would make it later. Um, and a lot of the historical stuff that he has in his gospel, he took from Josephus, if that's the case. So his his skills as a historian are overblown. And they don't seem to match Paul's letters and the history in Paul's letters a lot of times. Um, it seems to be a revisionist history of um, the church in Acts. Um, there's like theological developments that are happening in the first chapter of Acts that take Paul his whole authentic seven letters to get to, um, and the, the church knows about immediately on, like, day one from uh, the Ascension. Um, I just think that the idea that Luke is a, a reliable historian is uh, historical scholars do not accept that idea. Yeah, and I just want to add, I mean, to add on to what I said before, I mean, there's very little in the Gospel of Luke that is unique to Luke. So, I mean, most historians, and um, and I think Ben and I, basically agree with the Q hypothesis that um, Mar Mark in priority, that Mark was the first gospel of the canonical gospels, Mark was the first gospel written, and then Matthew and Luke each kind of independently took that and then also took a sayings gospel called Q and um, wrote their own gospel. So when you take, the, when you factor in that, which with, there's a lot of reasons to think that that's exactly what happened. And um, the majority of scholarship thinks that's what happened. Well, Luke doesn't have, Luke has almost nothing that's totally unique to Luke. If you look it up, there's very little that Luke has that no one else has. And the things that Luke does have that no one else has is not are not historical details as much as um, things that he wants to emphasize that the other uh, Gospels might not emphasize. For instance, um, Luke really emphasizes that Jesus was a friend not only to the Jews, but also to the Samaritans um, and outcasts from different races and uh, nationalities. That's that's a theme that you see in in Luke. And so things that you find that will be unique to, Lo to Luke are not historical details. They're emphasis of theology, 
um, and emphasis of philosophy, however you want to call that. And I think that's that's an important thing to note when um, when people claim that Luke was this uh, thorough historian. Uh, well, why is he just getting his history from these other books and not like putting anything in a, of his own other than um, his uh, theological and philosophical spin? Yeah, and then I guess just really quickly, because I know we're sort of going overkill on this question, we just don't know anything about Luke either. Right. So the assumption is that he's this companion with Paul, and he's Paul's personal physician. There's no reason to, that we assume that, aside from a few we passages in, um, I think, in Acts, and... It's the people, the same people that claim that these we passages, these obscure passages where all of a sudden the pronoun changes from uh, he to we, um, like they read that super closely in order to infer who Luke is, but they won't read um, the authentic letters of Paul against the inauthentic letters of Paul with any type of like that type of scrutiny. So I just think that it's really like sort of comical um, to draw that assumption from just a change in pronoun like that. Um, but but we just don't know very much about Luke at all. So the a lot of these assumptions are just based on tradition, the same way these other things are. These traditions developed centuries after the actual events, and there's no reason to believe that they're historically accurate. Yeah, and as we do with most of the authors of the Bible, like when we say Luke, we're really saying it in quotes. We actually have no idea the name of the author. Um, the idea that it was a person named Luke comes from church tradition may be true, but uh, we just we just have no idea. All right, so the next question has to do with Jesus and the temple. Did Jesus predict that Jerusalem would be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans under Emperor Titus. So uh, Josh McDowell in the talk that he gave that we went through um, doesn't talk about this, but he does in, in his books um, as evidence that, um, you know, Jesus must have been the Messiah or must have been divine because he predicted um, before the fall of Jerusalem that it would indeed fall and that the temple would be destroyed. Um, so my response to that is, first of all, the earliest um, account of this saying comes from um, the Gospel of Mark, something to the effect where Jesus says, truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left on another. They will all be thrown down, talking about the temple. The only argument you have is if you say Mark was written before A.D. 70. And there are really good, legitimate scholars that say, yes, Mark was probably written in 66. I don't really ever see any dates um, going earlier than that for the Gospel of Mark. So you're talking about uh, four years before the temple was destroyed. Under the most gracious interpretation, um, if, you, if, you give, if you give it the best you can do, you can say, okay, Mark was written four years before the destruction of the temple, and you have Jesus predicting that the temple would be destroyed. Well, again, I think, I don't know if it's the majority, but many, many, many scholars say, no, Mark was probably written right around AD 70 or after AD 70. We just don't know that answer. So if Mark was written after AD 70, well, then clearly it's an easy prediction for an, any author to add into the book um, because obviously like it happened and then, and then the author went back and wrote in that Jesus predicted it before it happened. I'm not saying that happened, but that's possible. Um, the other option is that Jesus really did um, say those words. Now, if you read up on um, first century Jerusalem, you'll see that um, what led up to the Jesus movement and many other uh, like messianic movements going on at that time, there was all kinds of turmoil in Jerusalem. And they felt like they are... Uh, the, the Jews in Jerusalem felt like they were occupied. So, so it would not have been at all that crazy of a thing to think such an event would take place um, because it may have even been talked about. Like there may have been uh, Romans like politically that were saying, we need to destroy this temple. We need to sack Jerusalem. This was something in the air. This threat um, was not going away. So I think that's another explanation. So one explanation is that 
uh, Jesus is divine and somehow um, God gave him this information that the temple would be destroyed. Uh, another explanation is that it was kind of in the air, like in the zeitgeist of the time, that this was something that was inevitable. It was going to happen. And that's, and that's why they put this on the lips of Jesus. And the third option is that um, it was just written after the fact. Uh, and we, we simply don't know the answer to that. So I have two other potential um, interpretations as well. Um, one, I think that's obvious that people don't really talk about. I mean, G the historical Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet who was preaching a apocalyptic event that was going to bring the kingdom of God to earth, where he would reign as the, the king, the son of man, um, at the right hand of the father over the new kingdom of, of God on earth. Um, and so I think that it's perfectly logical that in looking forward to this apocalyptic event that Jesus is predicting, look, this apocalyptic event is going to happen where the temple is destroyed, and then I'm going to reign as the Son of Man at the right hand of my Father. Um, I don't think Jesus has to be prophetic in the sense that he's seeing the future for him to be... We know that his theology involved some apocalyptic type of reversal that was going to happen on earth to bring about the kingdom of, of, of uh, God. So um, I think that it's totally in line with... Um, with that belief that we can assume that an apocalyptic um, Jew would have. And then the other thing that I think is um, is plausible is it's some sort of a judgment on temple practices that Jesus disagreed with. Um, and so it's in line with his disruption that happens in the temple. Um, basically, he's saying, like, this house, I'm disgusted by the practices that are going on here, and um, he's proclaiming a judgment on the temple. Um, which would also, again, create controversy, especially if it's uh, part of um, his sort of disruption that happens in the market. Um, it doesn't mean that this, uh, these are, like, again, it doesn't, I don't think that it means that this is necessarily historically something that Jesus said, but I think that it's not implausible that he could say something like this. I think by the time we get to Matthew, um, the tradition has already been, exaggerated to be about the specific destruction of the temple in 70. Yeah, and I think that if you're using this as, you know, a fulfilled prophecy as evidence that uh, Christianity is true, um, it's only fair that you look at all of Jesus' prophecies. And the other one that he made even more persistent in the Gospels is the idea of his second coming and how that would happen in the lifetime of his disciples, which did not come true. Uh, if you go back, we did a whole series on this, I think a three-part series about um, the second coming and this prediction. So I think it's only fair if, if you are a Christian apologist and you're using this as an example, well, you need to look at all the other uh, prophecies, quote-unquote, that uh, Jesus made or the predictions that Jesus made. And the other thing I'd say, and this is like a really nitpicky point, so uh, forgive me for this, but I, th I do think it should be said that, you know, the Wailing Wall uh, has stones that are still stacked on one another. That, that's the original wall from the second temple, like the, the exact temple that Jesus is predicting, not one stone will be left on another. Uh, well, if you get into the technical details, there's a lot of stones that are still left on another. But I think that's a little nitpicky, but I, I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, I mean, I think by the time, I don't know if it's in Matthew or Luke, um, where it talks about the city will also be surrounded. It's like clear that more details have been added at that point about the um, sacking of Jerusalem. Um, I mean, again, so I think that it one of the ways that you date these books is by looking at these prophecies and when they are fulfilled and say, okay, well, this and this and this happened. This and this and this are predicted in the future. Some of these are in inter-narrative uh, predictions that are supposed to happen in the future of the narrative, but have clearly already happened in the real world when the narrative when the text is being written. And um, so, I just think that it's like not inconceivable that Mark is written after seventy A.D. But I also just think that if it's written before seventy A.D. And if the teaching goes back to Jesus, which it could, um, it doesn't mean that Jesus is predicting in the sense that he's got the future 
prediction. I think it's part of a failed prophecy of the overthrow of Jerusalem when he comes in power. Um, and that never happened. All that happened was the temple was destroyed. Jesus never returned in power. Yeah, and what you see with apologists is, and and um, let's say uh, academics who are, uh, you know, fundamentalists, uh, there really is a very strong motivation to push the these dates as early as you can get, and this is one of the biggest reasons why. Because if you can get Mark written before AD seventy, well, then you have what seems like a very clear prediction of Jesus uh, coming true. Um, so I think you have to keep that in mind um, when you're looking at this. I mean, I think it's very possible that Mark was written like right when this was happening. Like it was, it was like written right around AD 70. Um, I don't have the answer to that. And I think like nobody does. And that, that would be one of the most fascinating questions, I think. Um, but like I said, I think that like, you know, like going in and cherry picking out things that you think uh, are fulfilled prophecy while not doing the same thing for other things that seem like they're failed prophecies. And you can do this all through the Old Testament with Messianic prophecies. The book of Daniel comes to mind, um, where it really seems like uh, like exactly what Matthew does in his gospel, where it really seems like he's cherry-picking out things that aren't even prophecies in the Old Testament just to have Jesus fulfill them in the New Testament. Uh, and that actually brings us to our next question, I think, Ben. Um, do most historians agree that Matthew was written before 70 AD, probably between 55 and 65 CE? Yeah, no. Um, most historians do not think that. Like I just went through, um, most historians believe Mark was the first gospel written and Matthew would have been uh, of the canonical gospels and Matthew probably would have been the next. And um it appears that uh, Matthew is, it doesn't just appear, Matthew is clearly using Mark. Um, so Matthew typically has a later date, definitely after AD 70 um, for the dating. Yeah, according to early Christian writings, which uh, it's a great site, by the way, if you're looking for just kind of like the raw, what we have from the early church and the, uh, the various gospels and epistles that we have out there a lot of things that are canonical and things that are not canonical. But anyway, for the Gospel of Matthew, it puts the date range between 80 and 100, and that would definitely represent the consensus of modern scholarship. So, um, And I think that's probably about right. I think Matthew was probably written in that, in that time period after the, the destruction of the temple. Yeah, I've had a bunch of people argue with me on Twitter recently that Matthew is in priority, and I just think that's a ridiculous position to have. It makes no sense. Um, like, first of all, just I think the redaction process um, that we've talked about maybe a little bit um, just doesn't work that way. It's not usually taking away from documents. It's usually adding to them for context. So you have a more simple mark that's added in detail in Matthew. Um, you would have to figure out why Mark leaves out all the sayings that Matthew has in his gospel. Yeah, there's so many problems with that, Ben. We could do a, um, a whole series on this if we wanted to. But I mean, we're going. one thing we are going to do is talk about an interesting uh, Twitter video put out by one of our favorites, Julia Sweeney, um, comedian. And, uh, but she talks about the evolution that we see in the Gospels. And um, I think that's like the biggest um, reason to uh, deny that. I mean, there's a lot of really good scholarly reasons, but one of them is like you clearly see that Matthew is taking Mark and exaggerating it and adding to it and trying to relate everything to Old Testament prophecy. Um, to, to think that that somehow happened in reverse, um, it kind of like goes against a lot of common sense. And there's a lot of really good reason that we don't have time now to get into it all. But yeah, uh, there's no way. Mark was written before Matthew. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but that's if there's anything we know from like biblical scholarship about the Gospels, I think that's like a very base level thing. That's not to say we have all the answers about the synoptic problem and, you know, how how this all came to be. But the idea that Matthew was written before Mark, I think, is absurd. It makes more sense to me, and I think this—I don't agree with this. I agree, I'm moving less and less away from any agreement that I had with this position, too, but it makes more sense to believe that Luke had Matthew and Mark 
than it does to believe, and there was no cue than it does to believe that Matthew is in priority. Like exactly. I just see no good reason for anyone to believe that Matthew was in priority, except for maybe like an early church father tradition that we tradition that we talked about that has Matthew being written in Hebrew originally, and that's just like not logical about the Matthew that we have. Like there's there's no good reasons. Uh, if you want to trigger me on Twitter. You can tweet that at me, though. It really annoys me a lot when people <laughs> say that because it's just uh, it's nonsensical, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is really fascinating to read about the ver- the various theories of of how to explain the synoptic problem, and uh, you know, maybe uh, like you said, like there's there's other theories about how how this relationship exists, and some of them are plausible. Um, I'm I, after looking at it a lot. Like I'm, I'm still convinced that just the, the simple, you know, majority view of scholars with the two source hypothesis is the correct answer to this. I'm open to hearing what other people have to say, but the idea that Matthew uh, has priority, I think, is like I said, I think it's ridiculous. Or that you should hold to that position because one scholar says it somewhere. Like that's that's like the definition of fishing around for what someone that's gonna like confirm your own bias. So I uh, like, that's also the other thing that's really troublesome. And um, yeah, Ehrman says, Bart Ehrman says of the synoptic problem is you look for the one that, that creates the least amount of problems. And uh, that's about the best that we can do. Um, It's obviously a complicated issue. Um, But yeah, I think Mark in priority seems pretty clear. Yeah. And there's a reason I I don't want to harp on this too much, um, but there's a reason that, apologists want Matthew to be the first because it's also, it has a, it has a higher, uh, Christology and it also has a lot more details about things like the, the birth of Jesus, which Mark has nothing about. And it has Jesus fulfilling old Testament prophecy. Ben, I was driving back, um, from visiting my sister, out in Western Pennsylvania, driving back to New York City. But when I was out in the country, I kept seeing these big billboards. Um, that's you know, it says like believe in Jesus, and it would say in parentheses like read the Gospel of Matthew. And I thought that was funny <laughs> that it's like why? Wait a second. So it's like why Matthew? Like why yeah. not Mark? They're not they're not advertising to read Mark. No, um, nobody wants you to read Mark. <laughs> so I just think there's a reason that. Um, I find that Christian apologists love Matthew and they love John for very different reasons. But those are the ones that people really push. Whereas historically speaking, Mark is the one that has by far the most relevant because it's, it's the one that is clearly being used as a source. Um, and I think it's, it's also the most fascinating. It's not the most flashy gospel. I mean, it's shorter. It's not exaggerated. Um, but at the same time, I think I think recognizing that you can kind of understand where the where the future gospel writers were going, and um, we see that same process happening in Hollywood with film scripts. But again, we're going to talk about that uh, on the episode we do about Julia Sweeney. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see if we can plow through a couple more uh, questions. Does the persistence of the church through its early history? prove the truth of Christianity? I would suggest that in in no way does it do that. And if you posit that, you would also have to posit the truth of many other religions. Uh, Mormonism comes to mind because right now it's the fastest growing religion in the world. Um, And the fact that it is a fast growing religion has no bearing whatsoever on if it's true. Yeah, I I think this is... um this is a really unconvincing argument that I'm shocked when people make. Um, all, all that a religion spreading quickly tells you is that a religion spread quickly. And really it'll tell you more about the social conditions um, of the people that where that religion was able to find fertile ground. Um, it, it should exp- it'll, will explain more about those conditions than it will about the, truth or untruth of the historical claims that that religion makes like though like in religion by its definition is not concerned really with the historical claims what it's concerned with is giving people meaning um 
but there's no reason to to assume that. I, I think, in fact, that Christianity part of the reason it was able to spread is because it was extremely malleable and um, not super creedal early on, um, in the sense that like it didn't have all its doctrines flushed out, and so therefore different areas were able to interpret it in different ways, and uh, different practices were preserved. So I think that. Um, just because it spreads doesn't mean that everybody believed the same Christianity. Um, it doesn't really make mean, it doesn't have any conclusions towards the actual truth of the initial historical claims of that religion. And I think the next two questions are uh, along the same line, so why don't you continue with that? Okay. Um, does the fact that it's the biggest religion prove its truth? Um, okay, well, currently... Christianity has 2.4 billion followers, um, and this is just according to Wikipedia, and Islam has 1.9 billion followers. So um, it's the biggest, but what happens if it's not the biggest anymore? Does Christianity then become not true and Islam becomes true? Um, or are you saying, would, would this questioner say that... Um, if that Islam could never be bigger than Christianity because only the true one will be the most popular. It also, I think, goes against a lot of um, Christian doctrine that um, basically talks about the narrow path and like few will reach it. Like the idea of it being a minority religion actually works pretty well with Christianity. Yeah, I agree. I think that, uh, again, it's just, it's a shifting, uh, standard if it's just that the most people believe and if you stretch the human timeline back um way more people have not been christians than have been christians in history um just by virtue of the hundreds of thousands of years of time that happened before christianity was even on the scene so it just doesn't it's it just doesn't make sense i mean it, it, you would have a shifting truth as people believe or disbelieve and i think like the underlying foundation for the question is sort of the idea of like a transformed life being proof i think um or like that this this uh this movement is some sort of like manifestation of uh divine favor and i think that a lot of people have written a bunch of good books i think bart ehrman even wrote a, a good book um detailing the um social political, economic circumstances that enabled Christianity to spread so quickly um, and that it didn't take any type of miraculous growth. It just took normal growth that happens in a lot of religious movements early on. Yeah, and I also think it's important to say that when we talk about it being um, the biggest religion, we're kind of making a false assumption that Christianity is like unified behind one banner we've talked about in the past how Christianity is fractured into uh, sects and denominations and Eastern Orthodox and Catholic, like many of which had like basically warring with each other for uh, thousands of years. Uh, I mean, the, the Protestants um, basically said like the Catholic church was like heretical and vice versa. Um, and to this day, like the church I grew up in, they would not have considered various other sects of Christianity, like Pentecostals, et cetera, actual like, uh, members of the kingdom. So it's important to say like Christianity, one way to look at it is it's actually like uh, a spectrum of religions uh, because they, if, if they don't believe that they're all like under the same umbrella, which many of them don't, I think it's hard to consider it like one solitary religion. I just think it's important to make that distinction. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And then the last question in this section, is the rich history of Christianity a testament to the truth of the Bible? Now, th this one I think is interesting because the, <laughs> the word rich, this question implies that Christianity only has this glorious rich history, um, leaving out things like the Crusades and, um, or the medieval period, which was, you know, thousands of years of... Uh, of what is now considered the Dark Ages, where um, the church was basically torturing people and not even allowing them to have uh, the Bible in their own in their own language, a rich history. Uh, I don't think that's the word I would use. 
Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like, like you can't have it both ways. You can't have all the good and none of the bad. And I think that that's the way these questions always go. Like, well, like, look at, like, Western civilization and what Christianity has brought forth. And, like, yes, there's a relationship between Christianity and Western civilization. Um, there were positives uh, that came about through uh, Christian history. But like you said, John, at great cost sometimes, uh, antebellum slavery was totally aligned with uh, U.S. Uh, United Christianity in the United States. Um, you have colonialism was like tied with like this Christian idea of, of uh the white man's burden and bringing civilization to to uh, savage people. Um, you have the Crusades, like you mentioned. You have the Inquisition. Uh, you have the Middle Ages. You have um, the Duggars. I mean, we just watched this in America in the modern era. Um, you know, like massive abuse going on in uh, the evangelical church. And then to think of the modern Catholic church, which has just been riddled with scandals of... Uh, children being abused regularly like is that part of the rich history of christianity yeah it's sort of uh uh in poor taste to refer to it that way well i know ben we said that um <laughs> we were going to conclude our josh mcdowell series today but once again um as is typical with us we've gone on too long so i think we still have some other questions that we want to give time to our listeners uh, the people that took the time to write in questions and uh, and reach out to us on social media. So why don't we end it here today and then pick it up next time uh, to finish out the questions. That sounds good. All right. Take care, everybody. Good night, all. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skeptics bible project and follow us on all social media platforms at skeptics project got questions or comments email us at skeptics bible project at gmail.com Ooh.